Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is a continuation of the Division Capsules podcast that we've been doing here on Real GM Radio, and this is the Northwest Division with my stalwart and excellent guests, Adam Morris of DNVR, which I'm so thrilled with the success that they're having, and David Locke of the Utah Jazz and the Lockdown Podcast Network, Lockdown Jazz as well, and... The Northwest has a lot of really interesting things to discuss. It has the reigning NBA champions, of course, too. And we go through the normal discussions of who got better, who got worse, important moves, but a lot also on what these teams are going to look like and how they're going to fit and how they're going to flow. And I really love the conversation, as I always do, with those two gentlemen, because we we get into some really interesting stuff. Episode is brought to you by FanDuel. New customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets. All customers who bet $5 can get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket, but you have to move quickly on the second part of that. FanDuel.com slash Boston to check that out. Episode runs, I think it's like an hour 20. There's a lot of great stuff in here. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. I don't know how to do the Kevin Pelton thing where we all talk on top of each other and then start fighting about it, so I'll just wait my turn. This is always a fun one to do, even more fun because the reigning champion is in this division. Of course, we will talk about that a fair amount over the course of this. And I'm going to start with Adam on the the first question we usually do in these in the kind of the off-season review section, not that we rigidly follow a framework, is just of these five teams, who do you think got better and who do you think got worse? Oh, man, right off the bat. Um, I think some of this is I, – I answer this as who is better than last year. Sure. Got better almost implies moves or trades or something like that. I think some of this is just like internally. But I think the Timberwolves have been my team that I think is – I don't know if sleeping giant is the right word, but I just think that they're better than what they have shown, and this is the year it probably comes together for them. I think the Thunder are better just by virtue of their young team that gets older. They add Chet Holmgren. Um, and then I think Utah is probably better, but same record. Uh, again, by virtue of they have a lot of young players, um, you know, maybe slightly better health, so they might be a better team. But I don't expect them to be better necessarily in the uh, win-loss column. And I think Denver's a lot better because they won a championship. 
Like that's an experience that nobody else has that they have, and that makes them better. And I, I don't think that can be underestimated in the slightest bit. That they just have a moxie and a confidence to who they are. I, I understand that they lost a player or two, but I think that's just such a mammoth deal. When you look back, teams that win championships have a little something to them, and um, I, I think Oklahoma City. You know, I think everybody but Portland got better, and Portland yeah. probably got better at this moment. We just don't know what their roster is going to look like by the time it gets going. Going, or maybe we do. Um, but I think, you know, John Collins makes Utah better. He's a top 100 player they didn't have on the roster. They gave up Rudy Gay for him, who was a top 500 player. And <laughs> they, you know, and Oklahoma City's better because they have Chet and because their young players all have another year of development. And Minnesota, I'm with Adam. Uh, but I had Minnesota as my number one seed last year, so I looked really foolish. I, I think they'll play a home court uh, playoff game this year. Yeah, David, I, I think David, far. I think your point about championship and moxie and all that is is a very well taken one. And I remember back to when the Warriors won their first one, and they didn't change the roster too much, and just they ran roughshod. And I think from a talent in, talent out, yes, Denver is worse, and they also may prioritize the regular season a little bit less. Depends on what the West looks like, but we don't know that yet. The thing that makes me a little bit a little bit different about them than some of those other champs. I, I agree with all of what you said. I think that's true. But they don't really have, to me, and I'm be very interested to see if Adam, which side of this he goes on, they don't really have a clear Bruce Brown replacement. Like, I, I'm a big believer that if we're talking about the Nuggets and the area they have earned in the conversation, then part of what this conversation is, is closing fives against really good teams. And I love Bruce Brown. I, I really appreciate what he did. And Jeff Green, you know, the rotation player, again, they can replace him more easily, but I'm not sure that they did. So I agree with the idea that the players they have will approach it better and will will be better. But I worry about the departure of Bruce Brown. I mean, first of all, Denver's best closing lineup did not feature Bruce Brown. That's true. He gave them lineup versatility so that he could close against specific types of matchups. But I think Michael Porter had a very good, probably sneaky good defensive season last year. And he had a very good defensive playoffs. I mean, there was, if you go back and watch that Lakers game, they started out the series by targeting him. And that didn't go past game one. They decided that Jamal Murray was the easier person to kind of target just size-wise. But... Michael Porter got matched up against, you know, their main pieces several times and held his own. And eventually they just decided that wasn't the matchup. So for me, I think that Bruce, the idea of Bruce Brown in the exact way that you're mentioning that you could kind of give him for Michael Porter, if you want to go more defense or more ball handling or whatever, I think it was probably more impactful in theory than an actual practice. I think Bruce Brown, Denver's going to miss his swagger. They're going to miss his toughness. I know that sounds silly, but I think every team needs to have a few of those guys on their roster, just different personality types. And Denver is deficient at that and has been in the entire Jokic era. And he brought a lot of that to them. I think that they had a nice swagger to them, a nice confidence to them in the playoffs. And I think he brought a lot of that to the team. They'll miss his ball handling because Denver did not you know, Reggie Jackson's the backup point guard. So I think they're going to miss that from him. But I don't know that it's necessarily fair to think of it in terms of did Denver replace his exact skill set? I think that they're going to have some other players that pop up in, in into the rotation that sort of collectively give a different identity to the team and a different sort of strengths and weaknesses. But the thing that I think where you really want to talk about Denver and how to compare him to last year, Bruce Brown in the playoffs was obviously another guy that made blended lineups work. He could replace a number of starters and it still worked. But Denver's bench unit last 
year was horrible. One of the worst. Oh, baby. Jeff Green was terrible last year. Denver got outscored by 10 points per 100 possessions when Jokic was not on the court. And a lot of that had to do with those bench lineups. So I look at it and I think at least as the regular season, losing Bruce, I don't think Denver's bench would be any worse. It might not be better. But I don't think it'll be any worse than what it was last year. So maybe this gets to a question I was waiting on for a little bit. But as I was prepping for this and thinking about it and thinking about Denver, I can really go two directions here. One, they had this just incredibly dominant playoff run. Like, it wasn't close. There there was no one close to them. On the other end, their regular season differential was a plus 3.8. So, which is just, it has to be the lowest by a champion in you know, I, I don't know. I mean, Adam, you probably know it was probably talked about and I've forgotten about it. It has to be one of the lowest ever by a champion. Mm. I mean, frankly, having only one team with a differential over six last year is just a sign to me that the league's so dramatically different than we we can't even fathom. Um, and so those two things I actually think play together here. Like on one element, the fact that only one team in the NBA, Boston, last year had a differential above seven or above six just tells me that every one of these teams is so got significant weaknesses somewhere, right? We just don't have the Warriors at plus 12 or the old Bulls or old Jazz or old, you know, Lakers or all those teams that were just so dominant. And so it's clear to me that there's things lacking on all of these teams or they would just be much more dominant. The, the other side of it is, you know, that playoff run was as dominant as, you, as any anyone has ever been almost. So I honestly am kind of perplexed on what I think here. On one level, like I look at it, I'm like, oh my gosh, if Reggie Jackson's not good, which seems really reasonable to expect, then that bench to me gets really thin, like crazy thin, and I get really worried. But on the other end, like, so what? Like, they weren't great last year. They were plus 3.8, and they went on to do what they did. I, I think this is an easy one to kind of crack here, and that is Denver had... I believe the best starting lineup in the NBA. I think statistically the Warriors had a better starting lineup, although on much fewer minutes just because of different injuries and this or that. But Denver's starting lineup was phenomenal all year. And that, like I said, their bench was so bad that it equaled out into this, you know, plus four or whatever net rating. But in the playoffs, Denver played seven guys, seven and a half guys. You shift the proportions. Yeah. Yeah, they would, some nights they would go to Christian Brown's the eighth man, most nights, but not every night. And then they would have Bruce Brown and Jeff Green. And again, Jeff Green, I thought, was not good, although he did have a few moments in the playoffs. Mostly he was just a body, like a big body that they could throw on some of their bigger players. But Denver's starting lineup was so good that when they play 40 minutes a night, they look like that team that looked like they could win 55, 60 wins, whatever it was. So for me, that's just the real answer. And I think Denver this year, this is why I say their starters are going to be what they are. We have six years of data that show Murray, Jokic, and then just any other combination of players. That's a great lineup. When those guys are off the court, I just think it's going to be at worst like it was last year. At best, probably still bad, but maybe not minus 10 bad or whatever it was last year. And then the playoffs come around and the question will be, do they have seven guys? I think they have six for sure. But do they have do they find one, maybe two more players that can play, you know, every game in the playoffs? Uh, to add one stat to what David was saying before, Denver in the postseason, they went 16-4. and four, four losses in the entire playoffs with a cleaning the glass net rating of plus 9.2. That is really, really good. And they were ridiculous on offense. The only team that had a better offensive rating than them was New Orleans, who played in one play-in game. That counts on cleaning the glasses version of it. They were crushing everybody there, and the defense was was very strong as well and definitely strong enough, which is, I mean, with Jokic, that I, I brought up the idea in the playoffs of the metronome. Basically, the idea was that 
Denver bent the rules of basketball because their offense was so consistent that it changed the threshold for their defense. And so I think a lot of that stuff is generally true. And to what Adam was getting, to what, what Adam was talking about, those groups I do believe in. And that also, yeah, that explains the potential disparity between regular season and postseason. And by the way, great defenses. You know, they went up yes. against Minnesota had, was a very good defense and they have what, again, what I think is probably the best combination of players to go up against Denver. They had length on the perimeter. Nikhil Alexander-Walker was great. And obviously, Gobert inside is is tough, even though Jokic has had some good playoff series against him. You know, he's still tough. Anthony Davis was having one of the best interior defensive postseasons, you know, we've ever seen, or at least of the last 10 years, until he went up against Denver. And then that, you know, obviously went how it went. And then Miami, everybody knows an incredible, versatile, smart um, defense, and Denver carved them up as well. So part of me, it's it's the culmination of something I've been saying, honestly, for several years, which is I don't think teams can stop Denver and Jokic when they have all the pieces around. I just, I don't think there's a defense. It's Steph Curry-esque where you have to kind of win the margins and then hope you can make up for it on the other end. But Denver last year was proof of concept of that very thing. How much, okay, let's see, never mind. I know how much. It's 99% Jokic. He's incredible. I'm with you. It was interesting to me in Summer League that every team I watched in Summer League that could suddenly was trying to run the same offense as Denver. (laughs) And so when the Jazz try this with Kelly Olenek and Minnesota in this conference does it with Carl Anthony Towns, is there something to playing this high post, big passing, four out, Aaron Gordon's not quite four out, but go with it, type offense or with one cutter that is going to become the new model of the NBA that while not everyone has Jokic, they still can do it at a at a really high level. I, I think the Jazz are going to use Kelly Olenek the yeah. way Denver uses Jokic as one of the, as maybe their primary ball handler for a large portion of games. What, one I of the truisms it. for me is that the NBA is a copycat league, but generally you can't get to the cat. Like that's the that's the idea. The Warriors <laughs> were an example of that with their defense. Honestly, their defense and their offense. Like the defense of yeah. oh, we're gonna we're gonna do this, we're gonna do the system, and nobody found a Draymond Green other than arguably at brief moments the Houston Rockets. And Jokic, I mean, for me, that disparity is the Kings Warriors series, and then what Denver did in the playoffs, where. Sabonis is a wonderful player who had a fabulous year, who earned all of the praise that he had. He's also not Nikola Jokic. And when they ran up against, you know, a a very good Warriors team that was a better version of themselves than they were in the regular season overall, it didn't work quite the same way. But Denver, they can't. And I don't care that teams are getting more reps against this theory. You still can't do it. And Adam, you brought up Jokic. This is going to maybe be the biggest piece of praise I've ever said. Jokic is more, for, for Jokic, Jokic is more undeniable than Stephen Curry, in part because of the scheme and in part because of his physical size. He has no offensive weaknesses. There isn't a way to take him out of anything. And so I just don't know what the, I, I don't think there's a hack here. I think he, I, I think he's hack proof. Yeah, I mean, the the hack is you still have to have – he's a team player, so you still have to have the team around him that can finish the plays because anytime you're passing or using a two-man game or whatever, you still need somebody else that knows how to do that. And Denver over the years has just built a roster that I think is more or less perfect towards his skill set. But to get back to, da- to David's question, which I think is a great one, 
I mean, that is the easy but obvious answer, which is that there's only one Jokic. And we've already seen this. I've been actually saying this for several years. Andre Drummond, when he was in Detroit, I remember they started having him run dribble handoffs like four yep. times more than he ever had in his career. So I think the influence is already seen, but it is a bit like there's a difference between having Kemba Walker pull up off the dribble for three and having Steph Curry. It's like, okay, some of the principles translate, but Steph is not just a great three-point shooter. He has a great handle. He has a great feel for the game. He's a great off-ball mover. He does all these other things, and Jokic is a great passer. That's what he's known for. He probably also has the best touch of any player, guard or center or forward in the NBA, especially from five, six, seven feet. So he is also one of the best post-up players in the NBA, if not the best. He's got all these combinations of skills, so I do think teams will borrow the elbow passing and the perimeter passing and just playing from those spots, the sets you can run. But that doesn't translate to all of the different ways Jokic punishes a defense from that starting point. By the way, he shot 46% from three last year in the playoffs. I'm not at all surprised. He's shot, I'm going through the years here, 41%, 42%, 40%, 42%, 42% in the final. Like He does this every year where he shoots 33% from three in the regular season and the playoffs roll around and all of a sudden he's well above 40 uh, do you mind that's if I? Where, sorry, that's where he's hack-proof, by the way. <laughs> yeah, when he can do that too. Uh, let's jump to the Minnesota Timberwolves. I think we all had had some interest there, and Minnesota. I like Adams' phrasing for how how to kind of work through this um, with Minnesota that. You know, they didn't have a lot of talent in, talent out, really, if you want to phrase it that way. Troy Brown Jr., Shake Milton in. I don't know if they're going to play their rookies. Torian Prince, most significant guy out. And then if you want to factor in Carl Anthony Towns playing 29 games last year, and they, you know, they, they had either D'Angelo Russell or Mike Conley, somebody very familiar to this division, in, in there most of the time. But I like this roster balance better than last year, and hopefully they get more of their best players in aggregate, though Jaden McDaniels wasn't hurt much last year. Anthony Edwards was remarkably durable last year. So the overall part there might be a little tricky. So I'm very bullish on them, as I mentioned, and largely because I just think they'll have contextual order and they'll have, like I call it the rightful order, the basketball universe. They'll, they'll just kind of understand it's Anthony Edwards' team. They'll play off that. The only one I'm just a little concerned with, Mike Conley was so good for them. 24 games, he played 31 minutes a night, which is about his number. He shot 46% from the field, 42% from three, 14 points, five assists, like super for them. There are just a ton of indicators on Mike Conley, including my eyes last year, that like it's coming to an end. I mean, namely, he's 36 years old on opening day as a point guard at six foot one, 175 pounds. If he can hold it together, I'm super bullish on this team. But I, when it goes for a guard, it goes fast. And it, that could be happening. And there are a bunch of little indicators that show that. He's he's one of the all-time great teammates. He's one of the great late-game players and getting things organized. He'll make sure that that team that's just been kind of a mat. I mean, he couldn't be more contrary than D'Angelo Russell in regards to like understanding how a game should be played and how a team should come together. He's perfect for them. So if he can survive 
somehow getting that body through his yoga and everything else for another year. I, I'm crazy bullish on them. But that is that is the tightrope that they're walking right now is whether or not a 36-year-old point guard can still hold it together. And point guard is just so important, especially on a team that features two centers. You know, like organization and those types of things are just going to be so valuable. So you're right. And the backup there is Jordan McLaughlin. I'm, then you got Shake Milton to kill Alexander Walker, not exactly point guard. So you're really thin. It's not like there are a lot of options. I'll tell you, and this might be going too deep into the weeds on this, Tim Conley drafted Bones Highland here in Denver. Bones gets traded basically for nothing to uh, to the Clippers, and I'm and didn't really play a lot for the Clippers. I would not be surprised if Bones Highland finds his way to Minnesota sure. sometime during the season, especially on a, a just you look at need and you look at the price it would probably cost to get him there, pretty cheap, and he's a good regular season player. But to me, Minnesota might be the team I fear most in the entire NBA, maybe Boston and then and then Minnesota in terms of teams that match up with Denver, because Anthony Edwards, we all I think everybody on earth loves Anthony Edwards and, and, and kind of buys the hype with him. I think Jaden McDaniels is such a sneaky impact player because of the skill set, the way he plays. And Denver, if he played in that series, I honestly think that would have been a six or seven game series um, just because the length and the ability to guard a player like Jamal Murray with his size is so valuable. Jaden McDaniels, Rudy Gobert, Nikhil Alexander-Walker hasn't been known for this, but I know when he got traded to Minnesota, that was emphasized, hey, you're going to make money by being a defensive player. And he was great even in the playoffs playing defense. I look at that and I think Gobert, McDaniels, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, you've got Kyle Anderson who's a smart player. I think they have the makings of a very good playoff defensive rotation. And that to me is why I think that they could work. Although the point guard part of this is obviously extremely volatile. The only thing about the point guard thing I would, and I built, I brought it up. They changed last year when Kyle Anderson became prominent. Now, how they're going to work Kyle Anderson in with Conley Edwards, McDaniels, Towns, and Gobert. But Kyle Anderson is just that plus-minus Marvel who held that team, I thought held that team together last year, and that's when they turned the corner late. I I love this roster. Like, if I look at it, they're like if they're 10, I would put Shake Milton over Jordan McLaughlin, but if their 10 is Conley Edwards, McDaniels, Towns, Gobert, Nas Reed, Kyle Anderson, Troy Brown, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, like, we were just talking a moment ago about how hard it is. Like, Denver's just so thin. There just aren't going to be teams that are flawless. There aren't going to be teams that I think, like, I like to talk about the 240 minutes on everyone's roster. I think it's going to be hard for most teams to have 240 minutes. I think this one's really close to having 240 minutes of bona fide NBA start rotation players, not starting, rotation players on their roster. I I think they're really good. my my big thing is Carl Anthony Towns. I just look at him and I think if he gets traded, if it, it to me he's the one piece that has a lot of value that I just don't like the fit there. And I look at their roster and I think the types of players you could get back in a, a theoretical Carl Anthony Towns trade would really complete this roster in a way that would be pretty terrifying. So that's so yeah. Adam, what's your what's your theory there? What do you what do you see them trading Towns for that makes them that dangerous? I mean, I you, this is I don't spend a lot of time doing other team trades here, but you know, you look at some of the players that might be available out of Toronto. I don't know what Brooklyn's plan is long term, but they obviously have a lot of wings. I'm just looking at it and going, okay, Anthony Edwards is a big shooting guard. He like playing the two. 
He's got great size, two-way player. Jaden McDaniels is an enormous wing, three or four. And then Gobert's a great a five. So you're probably looking at just another forward. Well, that's when you start to get into the Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnsons and OG Ananobis and maybe even a Siakam. A Carl Anthony Towns trade, that's the types of players maybe you're pulling in. Uh, oh, that's the caliber player I think you can expect uh, to be pulling in. So for me, if you were to add that type of high caliber role player to that roster, to me, they would make a lot more sense. Probably you need a point guard as well in some kind of trade like that. But I look at that and I think, again, I don't think Brooklyn is looking to do this, but Spencer Dinwiddie, Cam Johnson, Spencer Dinwiddie, Mikael Bridges, something like that, that completes this roster to where it would make a lot of sense to me. That's it. That's- I agree with the concern on Cap, but if he's like your fourth most impactful player because Conley holds together and Anthony Edwards and Rudy Gobert, then, then is it all right? Then he just kind of, he's just a brilliant, like, isn't that no, maybe I, I think that's what he is. I think he's for what they need. He's overqualified and he's underqualified for the other things, uh, you know, that they need from him. Not necessarily a great fit with the two centers. So to me, I just, that's a trade. Those are the trades I'm looking around and just going every year. There's a trade you don't see, you know, even think about like Brandon Ingram and New Orleans. What's New Orleans doing? When do they decide if their players are right? And is that the type of guy that could go over there that completes their roster? I don't love Brandon Ingram, but it makes more sense in a roster than Carl Anthony Towns does, in my opinion. I am not adding this stat to say that it is definitive in any way, shape, or form. The Minnesota Timberwolves last year, when they had Edwards and Towns, no Gobert, a one twenty, a roughly a one twenty clean the glass offensive rating. Towns, Edwards, and Gobert, one hundred eight point two. And yeah. part part of that is the the aggregate spacing and some of that type of stuff. Part of it is this weird thing that Carl Anthony Towns couldn't make a three when Rudy Gobert was on the floor, which those sorts of shooting anomalies you expect to regress to the mean in time, either either direction. And so that you know, like the, the hard thing with Towns is like at his best. He is an unbelievable talent. And even if it is Anthony Edwards' team, like the odds are you're not going to get back a player as good as him. But I think what and I, what Adam's saying, and this is such a compelling idea to me, is that usually you're star obsessed because stars are what open unlock everything. We just spent a long time talking about Denver. That's what they do. But if you already have that player, then you can kind of tilt things on their ear. And even though players can be collaborative and you can have multiple advantage creators and everything else, it doesn't have to be that way. You get more, you get more latitude, you get more flexibility. And I wonder what Tim Connolly's going to do. I hadn't really thought about that in that context before now. Well, we uh, we've been talking about a couple teams, go, and uh, oh, good. I had a different. I have a different take. If we're going to talk about Minnesota sure. for a second, and I don't want to like. It's a hard one for me because I'm such a fan. But so Rudy had a bad year last year, right? For whatever reason, France just had a miserable FIBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, is there any? Is like Rudy's block numbers were down. Much just like, is there any concern that like he's slipped he's or I don't know what the word is, but like. I mean, this is he's good if he's a top three defensive player in the world. That that's when he's good, right? He does not have offensive skills. He dominated this league for five years in a way that very few defensive players ever have. Is he still capable of doing that? I still think he is. Wasn't he dealing with injuries last year, including in the playoffs? I thought that might have been part of it. Maybe it's just age. I still think Gobert, and and a lot of this is there's a difference between the regular season and the playoffs. And I'm just going to say, if you think about Rudy Gobert versus Carl Anthony Towns, I don't care what the offensive numbers say about 
Towns Edwards in the regular season. I just don't see how that team becomes a winning playoff team. A versatile, de- you have to be versatile defensively and offensively, and I'm not buying it. With I, I do think you can have that with Gobert, and I thought that Denver in particular in their playoffs really struggled in key moments against Minnesota in large part because of Gobert. So again, obviously Denver overcame it. They won in five games, but nonetheless, the talent gap between those two teams is so wide and he still made an impact. So for me, I've just, I've seen Gobert at least make an impact on a a player like Jokic in a playoffs. Carl Anthony Towns to me is almost Ennis Cantor level in terms of when I watch them play in, in big moments, it's it's Denver runs circles around him specifically. It is a real concern. And if Towns could even remotely defend his position, then a lot of these problems wouldn't have been issues because then you could put another forward like you were talking about next to Towns and your offense would be cooking with gas and everything else. I'm kind of between the two of you on Gobert. One way of putting this, not that it's gospel, is like defense VPM. Gobert had been living in the like high fours, low fives for a little while. And then, you know, had a, you know, like a plus three year in, in 2120 or in 20, 21, 22, and then 22, 23, that was down to a plus 1.6, which is still very good. Like one of the better defensive players in the league. But as David was saying, not one of the top two or three. I think he can be better than he was. But, you know, older, really tall guy in his 30s. I I think that top 10 is completely reasonable. Top five is totally possible. But top one, top two, it's it's definitely in the realm, of course. But I, I don't know that if I would like put my money down, like if if the if if I were given odds today on Gobert winning regular season defensive player of the year, like I probably wouldn't take it. Right. And you would, and, and you probably would have taken it to start. I mean, if you yeah, look well, at last his year, yes. and threes, Tyler, like his dunks and threes on Tyler Schnarr's site is super scary. Mm. Estimated plus minus number is like that's the, that that downward trend you're talking about is super scary. Yikes, that's interesting. You definitely have me looking at it now. Oh, let's move on. Let's move on to the. All right, but actually, okay. let's let's go there for a second. Sure. There's two ways to look at this, right? I, you can be the pessimist and say that's super scary. The other side is okay. It didn't work. Uh, I thought Chris Finch misused Rudy all year. He just wouldn't play him and drop like he's the greatest drop big maybe in the history of the NBA. And you're not playing him and drop like what? What, what are we doing? Like some of that was insane. Like I literally in a press conference, Chris Finch told me how he didn't like drop coverage. I'm like, well, then why did you possibly God's name trade for the greatest drop big that the league's seen in the last 20 years? Okay, so let's say they figure out how to use him better because I think that was a lot of it. Then you go look a lot of games where Rudy Gobert was a shadow of the impact player he was before. And 42, like, that's where I think you're at. And, and Towns was gone for a huge part of it. That's And now Anthony Edwards burst. That's where I think Adam's right when you say this is the team that scares him the most. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just think, like, everything possibly went wrong on that team that could last year. Maybe it is just busted and it's just a bad move to put Rudy on that team. But if it turns out otherwise, this is where I kind of go with where Adam is, that just everything went wrong last year. They had D'Angelo Russell. There was a fight for whose team it was. Rudy was a shadow. Towns was injured. Like, it was a disaster. And they won 42 games. And this year, if they can put it together, they might be really good. It's... It's a really it gives you a lot to think about. Um, I want to move on to the Utah Jazz, and we've we've alluded to them before. And one of the two guests on this podcast is a Jazz optimist this year, and it is Adam Morris. I'm going to let you have the floor at the beginning on why you're interested in the Jazz. Well, I have to preface it by saying when I, I I also think that they're going to more or less win the same amount of games last year. 
Last year they surprised everyone to win those games, and this year maybe they're, they'll fall more in line with that 37-45 record. Um, but I just really like John Collins. I couldn't believe that deal uh, when he came over. I just think he's a really good player. I don't know about the fit. I'm really high on Walker Kessler. I think that he's another one of those guys that just has all the makings of an elite, you know, that this might be a year where we're talking about what an impact he makes defensively. I mean, last year there were some of the metrics as well. But this might be the year where where he just can he be the type of guy that anchors a top ten defense and you don't see it you don't understand it's just like no when he's out there if he's on any team he's a, you got a top ten defense and then they've got a handful of other players that I'm at least excited to see first of all I'm curious to hear from David about who's actually going to get a chance but Achaya Baji is a guy that I've always been just a little bit intrigued by Fantecchio I know didn't play a whole lot last year but he's a guy that I know in international competition at least I see the mold of player I think he can be a good enough player um, so those are the guys and then obviously marketing those are the guys to me where i look at it and i go that's a that's enough guys to have me intrigued oh kessler i think you're right on um i just don't think there's a lot of guys in the 99th percentile on block percentage their rookie year 97th percentile on offensive rebound 90th percentile on defensive rebounding like i think those it's pretty unique stuff he is not a good free throw shooter and he is going to have to figure that out that would probably be the one bugaboo Right now, otherwise, he's really wildly skilled and far more athletic than people think. So I do think the Jazz really have something there. Um, Stop blocking, because I'm a big man. I just love this thing. Jaron Jackson Jr. is a guy who plays like a maniac, where he's he's blocking shots because he just is going after everything. The he that's one type of shot blocker. The other type is what Walker Kessler is, which is just this elite positioning and timing where it doesn't. Guys will try him on a shot that he blocks with the palm of his hand because he's just reading it ahead of it and waits to the last possible moment. And I, those types of blocks to me are so sustainable. They don't require, oh, foul trouble or athleticism or this or that. It's just he reads how to block shots as well as just about anybody. He also blocks with, like, which doesn't seem like that big a big deal to me. Most players can't block with two hands, and he'll go up with two hands all the time. It's really interesting. Mo- Frankly, most guys can't jump with two hands in the air. Yeah, it, it's it's an unusual strength. And on on this front, um, our mutual friend Seth Partnow does compiles rim protection stats, and he had Kessler as the fourth highest in rim protection wins last year as a rookie, which is unbelievable. And the guys above him, Brooke Lopez, Draymond Green, Jaron Jackson Jr., who partially benefits, I believe, from a position adjustment. And like Adam said, Jaron, part of there is a trade-off with him because of his foul rate and a lot of other things. And also, you know, when you can attack differently when you're playing the four versus the five and everything else. And I I think that the theory of Utah's defense is sound. I mean, a walk uh, if only we had data to see that a drop a drop coverage with a rim protecting big could who was who was legit could end up being a sustainable thing. Oh wait, that's right. We have that from the Jazz for the preceding 8 years or whatever. Offense is what I'm concerned about. And I had a question for David on this. Matt Moore and I, you know, another mutual friend of this conversation, I talked a lot about how the Jazz offense went off an absolute cliff once they traded Mike Conley, which was partially by design. But they didn't really replace him in any traditional sense. And Matt's counter was they weren't really trying to win. But I still have this concern that they have a lot of complementary players, and I and that sells Larry Marketing short. He's far better than that in in a lot of ways, but they don't really have that advantage creator pick and roll guy. And you can succeed in other ways. There are examples within this division. But David, do you see where I'm coming from in terms of not having that organizer? So they don't have a point guard. Um, point Olenek 
is coming to a house near you soon. Um, I, I don't know if it really is going to be point to Linux, but I do think Kelly's going to play with the ball a lot in his hands. He's, he's actually surprisingly good at it. It sounds crazy to people who don't watch it. Um, I think there's a belief you don't need to have a traditional point guard anymore, that you can have a collection of, of multiple ball handlers the way they play, that they're not going to need that. The lineup, the offense falling off the cliff after Mike Conley left I think you have to dig into lineups. 100% legitimate. If you look at 25 games, I think they were in like the 25th percentile and some things like that. So, or even lower. So, I, I think that's that's really true. But if you go like find lineups that have, you know, obviously you got to find floor to try to figure this out. But then you got to okay. So Lowry, Market, and and Jordan Clarkson are on the floor. Low and Mike Conley's off. Well, their offense was in the 93rd percentile. Right, like they're plus 6.3. You know, put Kelly Olenek on the floor with that group or put Walker Kessler on the floor. So, you know, you got Walker Kessler, Lowry Mark, Jordan Clark, those are three best players. The offense was a 117 and in the 70th percentile. So I think the offensive drop-off late in the season was that you were playing Johnny Juzang and Luke like Ochai Baji was your go-to guy. Like, I think that's a lot of it. That makes sense to me. And the yeah, parsing these things is always difficult. And also, I mean, on the other side, for better and for worse, it's the, you know, you're you're playing suboptimal lineups and other teams can be too at times. But the, but as you said, they can get into it. Now, I, the theory there is probably, honestly, in the regular season, the thing I'm most interested in this conference league-wide. You know, like, we're always changing our expectations and our understandings. And I mean, what Denver did offensively in the playoffs is something that fundamentally changed the way I see modern basketball. I'm keeping a close eye on that. And you brought up a Linux. Part of what makes that different is, I mean, to me, the three best frontcourt players for the Jazz are Markadin, Kessler, and John Collins in whatever order you want to put those three. I agree that Olenek can do that, and then they can dabble with it with Markkinen, who has who has some nice talent, and they actually did some, if memory serves, and David, please correct me if I'm wrong, with Kessler, he did a little bit of handoff stuff at times, especially later in the season. But that might be more of a second unit, or you could think the way Kyle Anderson transformed the shorthanded Timberwolves, like, they go to it when they can, but it's not necessarily what Will Hardy wants to start, like his modus operandi starting five-wise. I got no idea who they're starting. I've been doing, an, on my podcast, Lockdown Jazz, I've been doing an off-season interview series where I talk to everybody who covers the team. We all have different five. We all have a different, and we all have a different backcourt. Mm, like, yeah. like I, I think the backcourt's Jordan Clarkson and Ochai Baji. Tony Jones of the Athletic thinks it's Chris Dunn and somebody in Jordan Clarkson. Mm. Um, you know, er, everybody's got a different lineup. Colin Sexton thinks he's starting. Like, I don't have any idea what they're doing as their backward. Not like like as though they don't know what they're doing. I just don't know what it is. Um, and even to that point, like, I like John Collins, too. I really, really like Kelly Olenek. Like, I'm just not entirely convinced that John Collins, Walker Kessler, and Larry Marketing are the three best. Like, I, I think Kelly Olenek's really good on every team he's ever played for is positive. Every single team, I think, except for his half year in Miami and Boston, his last two year, last year in each of them, for a full season, he's been positive he's ever played. Um, and so I do think John Collins probably starts. That's maybe not. Like, maybe John Collins. I think one of the things you could where John Collins could have a really big, huge year for them is if he's suddenly playing against second teams much more than he's ever done, right? He started a tremendous amount. So if he suddenly is playing against second teams, does he become way better? 
It's an interesting lineup to me, and maybe this is me being a homer. Like on the idea of 240 minutes, do they? I actually think they have more than 240 minutes of cal rotation players in the NBA. I don't know that they have. They only have two guys in the top hundred, maybe three. They're certainly lacking high end talent. But what's interesting to me is kind of be kind of the the ebb and flow of a Jazz game. To me, is how much can they hang on against the dominant starting five of a team like the Denver Nuggets, and then probably have an advantage until the final five minutes of the half, and then have a disadvantage for the first eight minutes of the of the half until the final five minutes of the game. And can they find a way to to somehow survive those other minutes? That's a good recipe for a young team, though. You know, just having this like up and down, this way you hit them in waves because you have the depth, and especially true in Utah, uh, you know, with the altitude and the home court advantage. So you're right. The more you look at this roster, there's gaps everywhere. They're also just so young. I think more than half of their roster has two or fewer years of experience. I mean, there's a lot of youth on this roster, so it'll probably not be a great team. But I, I am curious the names you mentioned, the names you kind of, <laughs> you, you kind of gloss over because they do have so many young players that I do wonder how many are going to can each other you know for minutes and yeah. a lot of some guys are just not going to get a chance because of depth i mean on that well, front here, here's a super interesting one to me maybe this is only interesting because i'm in utah taylor horton tucker's younger than ochai Abaji. yeah mm. he is and and horton tucker when he's had the ball in his hands i think he's looked better than when the ball isn't in his hands but how much do you trust him to do? I, I think part of the story with utah at the start of this year is going to be who does will hardy give the latitude to and who can take that brass ring and run with it like can can somebody can somebody thrive can and and i mean honestly i think it'll be a similar story to an extent in oklahoma city but okc already has the Che gildas alexander and we'll get to them soon enough but so if it's Keontae george awesome if it's abaji if it's sexton if it's tht if it's Kelly Olenek, you know, you're doing point point Kelly or however you want to make it work. I like having options there, but it is stressful for a coaching staff, even though they get games and practices to actually, because if they don't have that player, then it's going to be harder. I think I'm out of Utah Jazz takes. Yeah, I, I, I am. Lots more to discuss, but first a message from FanDuel. Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. That is fantastic. And now is the best time to join FanDuel. The app is easy to use, and you can be on everything from spreads to player props and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Boston. Kick off the NFL season with an offer you won't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21 and over and present in Massachusetts. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. D- bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Hope is here. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. NFL Sunday ticket offer ends 9-28-23. No refunds terms and embargoes apply hundred dollars off sunday ticket nfl sunday ticket not youtube tv youtube tv base plan required to watch youtube tv redemption requires a google account and current form of payment commercial use excluded subscription renews cancel any time now and we can move to the thunder shake gilders alexander built on a fabulous regular season with an awesome performance overall in the fiba world cup helping lead canada to a bronze medal and an olympic berth which is fantastic and OKC, 
I'm kind of of two minds with them, kind of paralleling what Adam said about the jazz, where there are a lot of things that I really like here. And generally speaking, with a team this extraordinarily young, the passage of time is really helpful. And they got deeper rather than more shallow. They brought in Misich. They brought, you know, they can lean more on some of these guys. They also dealt with a fair amount of injuries and they can go closer to that vaunted 240 minutes of good play. However, Shea Gilson-Alexander was already a monster last year, and Jalen Williams was a phenomenal rookie. I think he will continue to grow. And so, and I think Degnall did a wonderful job coaching. And so I think the qu- the question for me that I'm just, I, I'm not saying I have an answer either way here, is just, is this more of a positive year along the same road? Or is there a new road that has opened up for them because of how young and how good the, their foundation is? I'm in the, it's, everyone's a year early on them camp right now. Mm. Like, I still think they're just still so young. And I mean, I'm with you, Danny. Like, Shay's amazing. And maybe Shay's just good enough. It doesn't matter. And Jalen Williams is going to be bona fide. Like, there's no doubt on me how good he's going to be. But I, I just feel like they're still super young and just super thin still. I just feel like they're a year away still. But what is it? I mean, a year away from what? 50 wins and knocking really being one of the teams you talk about. Like, yeah. I feel like they're like you did the tears podcast with Matt Moore, Danny, and I listened to it the, recently. And yeah, I, I just think they're, they're off a tier from, I think where you guys had them. Like I would mm. have them probably, I think you had them in the same tier as the Lakers. Am I correct on that? And the same tier as the Pelicans. Like, I think I might have them a tier lower, just not a, like, not a huge, like my tiers are much tighter than at least the way it, it sounded to me. My tiers are much, much tighter just universally across the board in the league right now than the way you and Matt talked about it. Maybe that's because it makes it for a more interesting podcast. But, yeah, I just – like, are they more than a 44-win team? I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure yet either. I will note that the criteria for that, which Matt sets for each episode, was more unlike the cohesion of the organization, front office, and everything else. And I think OKC is more cohesive than they are – talented. That's just, you know, I, I believe a lot about Dagnell. I think that Sam Presti has done a wonderful job. I think that they're largely pulling in the same direction, which is a part of what Matt and I were doing there. In terms of team quality, I think I'm probably more in line with you as well. I wonder, like, I mean, the addition of Chet Holmgren here changes things for, for one really big reason. I was stunned that OKC ended up 16th in defense, and they did that through a lot do a lot of different things going well, but it was more sustainable than I think some think. You know, they were they were getting more from some guys, and I mean the other Jalen Williams drawing charges, and and he did a better job defensively. And Chet Holmgren, it's true that very few rookies are positive players, and I don't think that oh well he's he's a second year player. No, he he missed a year due to injury. The difference though is that OKC can if if it's not as great for Chet in year one and they need to play it a little more slowly, they can do that. But if he's great, then they have a spot for him to thrive. And that that kind of balance, that duality and the success they had, I think that bodes better for success than the circumstances where it's we're throwing them, we're throwing them in the deep end and we're sinking or swimming with them because that's that can be really stressful for a young guy. Yeah, I, I, the defense part, they have a lot of length and they have a really smart coach. I mean, they were one of the teams that every, you know, there are ways to guard Denver that are harder than others. And they were one of the teams that just always knew the, the toughest, you know, how to make things toughest on Denver. And part of that is personnel, just having length at your guard spots. And then part of that was obviously scheme. And they have, in my opinion, one of one of the really good young coaches in the league in Dagnot. But to me, the 
I, I didn't hear. I haven't heard people predicting fifty wins. So a ten win. No, no. Go yeah, ahead. I just think they're they're an in vogue team to love right now. I feel like it's just yeah. You're, I'm not trying to right. think Danny said it's right. They're going in the right direction. A bunch of things like that. They did some super interesting. I don't mean to cut you off. They they did some super interesting things last. Year. You should watch. Like I think Mark completely changed their defense philosophy. They were one of the teams in the league who fouled the least and suddenly fouled the most. They were also one of the teams that had the fewest turnovers forced. Now they forced some of the most. Like he left a little bit on what he does defensively last year, and I'm really curious to see what happens with it next. The the ability to manipulate your team into changing their statistical profile alone is sort of genius, right? Like he you change things up and they have such major ripple effects like that. You know that's harder to do. But for me. They're not a balanced roster. Like, this is very much the final year of a, I guess you would just say, talent or prospect roster. They have too many guards, but they're all good. You know, I I, I love their guard rotation. Obviously, with Shea, I'm with you on Jalen Williams. I think he's awesome. I'm super high on Josh Giddy, who's also awesome. And then you have uh, Lou Dord, who's Shea's best friend, a Canadian brother there. So they, that's your guard rotation, in my opinion. But then they brought over Michich, who Michich has said, I don't want to come over unless I'm playing. So presumably, he's playing. But we just listed off four guards who are all, you know, playable caliber players. That's before you get to a Trey Mann or Isaiah Joe or Victor Oladipo or wherever else you want to go with that. They don't have a ton of wings, although their guards are really, really long. And then I really like the big Jalen Williams. I actually think he's a sneaky, good regular season player. And then I really like Jack White, who came over. I know he's on nobody's radar right now, but came over from Denver. And I think he's an NBA player. I think he can play actual minutes. Uh, Obviously, Chet Holmgren. So I just think they have a lot of talent. It's not a coherent roster just yet and that all boxes are checked. But I am just so high on Shea. I think he's a top seven or eight player this year and maybe even in the MVP conversation. And that's probably enough to get you 44 wins, 45 wins. I don't well, even know what the line is, but that's, that's kind of what I think they are. If he's in the MVP category, they probably get 50. I mean, he's like, if you, if you believe he's top 10 player in the NBA, which he may be, he, he, he broke through last year. Uh, then maybe I'm, I'm dead wrong on this. Well, Can we know, talk Josh Giddy for a second? Yeah, let's do it. So Josh Giddy is the player who you watch and you love. And then the numbers like just bark at you that there's, it's like be concerned. So let me get like, there's great signs went from true shooting percentage. He went from the eighth percentile to the 24th last year. He went from 48% to 54%. That's a huge jump. Still in the 24th percentile, of true shooting percentage. His effective field. Went from 46 to 52, which is awesome. But he's still in the 30th percentile of effective field goal percentage. He's in the 30th percentile of rim finishing. He's in the 26th percentile in three-point shooting, which is great considering he used to be in the seventh. And maybe it's all heading in. He's in the 38th percentile of going to the rim. I mean, going to the free throw line. Like, Shea's going to have the ball in his hands, and Josh Giddy isn't at times, and maybe in key moments. And it, like, Josh Giddy's brilliant when the ball's in his hands. But, like, does that really compliment Shea? Probably not, which is why they'll have to make a decision on him. But I think all those before too long. But I think all those numbers sort of hide who he is, right? Like this, this would be like if I was, you know, looking at Rudy Gobert's jump shooting or this or that. It's like okay, these things are a little different. It's not that they're unimportant. I actually think they're super important in a playoff series when teams can start to say, okay, here's where these things don't line up. But he's an incredibly impactful floor general and and playmaker, and it comes at the expense of his finishing. I don't imagine that gets worse this year. And I don't know that he – I'm guessing when we just say that they have a logjam with all these young guards, to me he's the easy guy to look at and say, okay, they probably move on from him. But I think they move on from him after one more extremely productive playmaking season with this uh, team of prospects. 
what makes I the mean, giddy yeah, what makes me, the giddy dynamic I started that by saying go ahead David, go ahead Dave when I started that by saying like my eyes tell me one thing when I watch him right like he's so impactful he does all these things and then the numbers just bark at you like it's in a, and I sometimes can't figure out which is right on him and that's why I want to talk about it. well I, I think the answer is that they're both right and it's because Josh Giddy is better with the ball in his hands and Shea Gildas Alexander is better than Josh Giddy with the ball in his hands and so you look at a lot of what OKC does and like I got obsessed with this last year in the regular season where OKC's offense when Shea was on and Giddy was off was it was really really good as of the last time I checked I think I didn't look at that as much during the end of the season and part of that's because when you when you build the play out of Shea build the plane out of Shea Gilbert Alexander your plane is great but and and Giddy he doesn't have as many of those complementary skills but in time the hope is that he can soften some of the rough edges and that he could he could work there but I think he's more right now, and and I agree with Adam that you he's talented enough that you don't need to make that decision now. You see where this year goes. I think this is the most important year in terms of figuring out who is the foundation outside of Shea with this Thunder team. My instinct is that Jalen Williams, the the perimeter player, is a better fit with Shea than Giddy. Not that they have to be mutually exclusive, but they probably are. And so then you can go in a lot of directions. That does not make Giddy in any way, shape, or form a bad player or a bad pro. But what David is getting at, I think, is the limitation for right now, and I love it when guys prove me wrong in this, and they do constantly, is he may end up being, he's a preternatural passer, he has great vision, he has he can see these things, but he has a little bit of Lonzo Ball in him, in the sense of he is not physically dominant, despite his frame and his build, and those players, to me, are often some of the ones who leave you wanting. If he drove the way that Shea drove, then I would be more confident, but Josh Giddy hasn't been that guy, and he also doesn't apply himself in that way defensively. And generally, these can loosely tie together, not that every player does. So for me with Giddy, I think he would be, for right now, the player he is right now would be better somewhere else than he is, but you don't get that many bites at the apple for guys this good. And so you owe it to yourself to see where it goes out, even if it ends up being that my theory is right and you have to trade him and you get a little bit less a year from now than you would now. You guys are talking me out of Oklahoma City. I might lower them in my head now, just down to like forty-one wins or so. I think you guys are talking uh, me into it. I see. Here's the funny thing. No, I, I, I think, think they're going to win more than last Shea. year. Like Shea, Shea bounced. Like so I, I think Shea's good enough that you you shouldn't be doing that. He's honestly, to me, he really is close in the Luca tier of just. There's not really a great solve for him. And he's Jalen Williams is great. Oh yeah. By the way, Jalen Williams should have been rookie of the year. There's an easy like, argument for Jaylen it. Jalen Williams' second half of the season versus Paulo Boncaro's second half of the season are not even close. Like, how he he should have been rookie of the year. Mm. I'm very excited. Paulo for... Boncaro shot, like, 39%. I'm going to be slightly wrong on this. But, like, the last 30 games, like, Paulo Boncaro won the rookie of the year the first month of the season and then went proceeded to shoot about, like, 39% and 30% from three for the rest of the year. Well, Jalen Williams, like, I don't know where you want to start it, but if you if you just grab, like, from February 10th on or something, like, what's that, post-All-Star break? Like, right around that time period? Like, final 30 games of the year? He's by far the best rookie in the NBA. He was – we played him late. He, he averaged 19 points, five rebounds, and four assists, and two steals, shooting 55% and 44% from three in the final 25 games of the season. You know how Let they – Let me say that again. <laughs> Let me say that again. 
he went 50, 40, 89, scoring 19 points, five rebounds, four assists, and two steals in 34 minutes a night in the final 26 games of the season. On a team that was winning games and was trying to win games. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you know how they say, like with analytics, or a lot of the draft guys will say steals are a good indicator for you know success for, amongst prospects because it shows anticipation. I think pick and roll is the equivalent offensively. Just if players have a really good like dynamic pick and roll game where they're doing multiple things out of the pick and roll, they probably are going to pick up the NBA game and, and their talents will shine. And that's Jalen Williams to me. Like he just, he knows how to play basketball. He knows how to read thousands of scenarios in real time. And that's why, and then obviously the physical tools with him is incredible wingspan and this is his height and size. He just, to me is a guy that the, the, the NBA is moving more and more, in my opinion, towards towards your intelligence really raises who you know your your impact, and he's just a really really smart player with a great feel. How much By do way, just uh, so I can be accurate? Go ahead. Fi- final thirty game, final thirty games of the year. Paul Van Kara shot forty two percent from the field and twenty seven percent from three. Yeah. Um, how much for the media slash broadcasting? How much do we have to crowdfund? To get one of the Jalen Williamses to ch- to f- to change the name they go by, um, that would be. I'm super willing to do this. <laughs> by the way, I like the big Jalen Williams. I think he's. Yeah, I do too. He's he's pretty smart. He has a little Boris Diaw. He has like good hands. He's a good passer. He's a little undersized to be a true center. He's kind of like a smaller, you know, like a four and a half. But uh, I like him. I think he's actually good. I like him too. Uh, I. I I think that there's a lot to uh, appreciate about big Jalen Williams game. I agree with you, though, that he's more of a regular season than a playoff guy, just because not only is it the they'll figure out what to do with his charge drawing and everything else, but it's also just the coalescing of overall talent level. Like you're getting these teams that are just stronger overall and that you're facing more dangerous matchups night in night out. But he was a key part of what made their their defense really sing last year. We've already gone basically an hour, haven't talked about the Portland Trailblazers at all. We, in part, that's because they're a work in progress. What I want to ask with them, this isn't the season preview part of it, but if we're treating them as presently constructed, is there is there enough here to buy it as a team that could really make some noise? And by noise, I mean, let's say make top six, not win no. a series or anything like that. No, the NBA, the top six in the West, I think, is incredibly difficult. There's just so many teams. I think there's 10 teams vying for the top six that all have a case for it. And it would take too many things going right, in my opinion, for that group to work. Uh, as great as Damian Lillard is, I do think it's hard to build the right roster around him, especially defensively. And I don't think they have the defensive pieces to do that. And the league just instituted rules on the day we were recording this about the Portland Trailblazers. Like, everyone's talking about that new player participation rule as though it's a star thing. The very subtle underlying thing on this is if you're going to sit a guy for the re- end of the year, you better be able to explain it. Uh, done it two years in a row. Like that was like I think everyone's misreporting that story. Like, yeah, there's forty nine players or whatever it is. What is it? There's forty forty nine players are classified as stars, but the underlying one on that is that, like you go put Bradley Beal or Dane Lillard on the bench at the end of the year now, the league wants to know why. Yeah. I think we're gonna I think see I think we're gonna see guys actually go under the knife before seasons are done. I think that's gonna be one of the ways this resolves. Yeah, but Bradley Beal and Brad and Dane Lillard didn't have any knee sur- didn't have any surgeries. They just lost would they lose twenty three of their final twenty eight last year, something like that? Good work. I mean, Good they work. Twenty six and twenty six when they pulled the plug. Somewhere right around then. Um, um, 
I don't. Uh, yeah, I also pulled Nurkic is when they really pulled the plug. For the record, Adam, I completely agree with you. I think that the there is a way for the Blazers to be strong in their best lineups, but they're going to be leaning a lot on young guys. They and and like many ensemble teams, they would need everyone to be healthy the whole year. And as a practical matter, that's not going to happen. Like there, that almost never happens for anybody. And like you could bring up the Kings last year, but Sabonis was playing her, and I think that's a in some ways that's a useful example to explain how this is. But I think Portland is a natural transition into the kind of the last offseason review part of this because the draft is occupies both zones which is the rookie that you are most excited to see I will note Chet Holmgren counts as a rookie he did not play at all the year that he was under contract but for me in part because of how intrigued I was by his film my answer in a tough call between a lot like him and, and Chet and a few other guys that I really like is Scoot Henderson, because if it works for Henderson, whether that's as a starter or reserve, depending on what in the world this team looks like, I I haven't been more impressed with a teenage point guard prospect in a long time, like point guard sized. I'm going to trust you. I haven't seen enough of him. He obviously, in everything I've seen, has been right. Like I've watched him in the game against Victor last year, a single summer league game before he got banged up. Like everything, yes, absolutely. And But I do think... The one thing I would say is if you are, what is he listed at? 6'2", 195? Yeah. You better be exceptional. There are very few players left in this league that are under six foot four, and you better be Trey Young, Donovan Mitchell, or maybe Scoot Henderson. If you're under six foot four, you can't play in this league anymore. Can't shoot, you can't play, and you're under six four, you can't play. That's where the league's gone, unless you are superhuman. He's a different kind of athlete, but in some ways, the one of the elements of Scoot Henderson's game, and especially when you think about how disjointed his G League nighttime was in part because of injuries, he orchestrated things. And the guy that I thought of at that age is somebody else who is six foot four and under who plays in the NBA, and that's Mike Conley. And I don't know, you don't. It, you don't want to compare guys to Mike Conley because he is such an anomaly with how, how well he has performed relative to his physical tools. And I mean, sometimes we lose sight of how he was a talented athlete when he was younger. Scoot, to me, is a different level of athlete than a lot of those guys. But we brought up Jalen Williams, and I think that the idea with Scoot Henderson is going to be fascinating on that front of... Does he just have this stuff figured out better? I think that he does, but I'm, you know, there is a whole mountain of evidence that we're going to get that is significantly larger than what we saw in two years with the Ignite. And I'm, I'm interested in where it goes from here. But you've got two NBA, you got two NBA guys stumped, Danny. (laughs) And, and the, I mean, with Chet Holmgren, the, one of the other arguments that, that makes him easy is if it works, it takes Oklahoma City into a different level. And and Holmgren, the part of his game that I think went a little bit under the radar relative, I don't consume infinite draft content because I don't read it until I finish my own work on that player. I don't want it to affect my analysis too much. Is I think his offensive game is underappreciated. Like he has pretty good feel, and that could work for OKC in a couple of different ways. You know, you can do some handoff stuff with him. His pick and pop game is pretty adept for a guy his age. And so OKC, there were times where they struggled with spacing. There were times where they were trying to like do a little bit with organization, depending on which ball handlers were out there. And so with Holmgren, sure, if he can play the four or the five and block shots at the rate that he did when he was at Gonzaga or what he did in the youth levels, high school and USA, that's great. But if he can be an offensive positive and do some of that stuff, then then you're cooking with gas. Can we have a, just a quick Victor chat size conversation? Sure. Like, can these guys do this? I'm more conf- I'm more really confident least. that Wembenyama can I've do call, it. I've called now. I, I've called Chet's last two summer league games and last and so I mean he's 
and he's he he's tough as hell, man. He battles, and that's he comes at you. He's super impressive in that regard. But boy, is he small. I mean, he is. He's Allen Iverson skinny and seven feet tall. It's scary. Sure. Can you do that? I think Holmgren might be a four. I think that might be the way it resolves with him. I think Webadiyama can play the five. And they're both they're both going to be massively impactful defensively, except for they're going to get thrown under the basket at times. I mean, Walker Kessler last year was pretty good as a rookie, and Nikola Jokic just like beat the living out of him, just pounded him underneath the rim to the point where he literally ran down. Walker ran down the floor, looked at Will Hardy, and said, "Coach, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm sorry. I'm trying." He's strong, man. <laughs> I think you're right. I, I I don't know. It's a good question. I think both guys early on are going to struggle with that a lot, and it'll probably look helpless. But I, I I still think these guys get stronger than they look. These really skinny guys get stronger than they look as as they stay in the NBA. I didn't ask a uh, best newcomer to their team. I'm trying to. Am I missing something, or is there not really a big competitor for John Collins? I think it's got to be John Collins. Unless you want to look back and decide whether Mike Conley a year ago is the answer. Like, I think last year we did this. The answer was whoever came, like, midway through the year, we decided was actually the most important player. Yeah. There's not a lot of new players. I mean, other than rookies and and John Collins. There's a handful of guys that are, you know, second year didn't play a whole lot of minutes. There's Chet Holmgren. There's those types. But I think it's John Collins pretty easy. We'll transition into the season preview, and Adam, we can start with you on this. Just the exercise of ranking these teams one to five. Uh, I I always think of it in terms of regular season record. You can use your own rationale. Just explain to the listeners what it is. I think both work for. I mean, it's the same for me. The order is the exact same: regular season and also playoff. You know, sort of optimism. Nuggets to me easily number one. I think Timberwolves number two, Thunder number three, Jazz number four, Blazers number five. Um, and I, I think that. I would be kind of surprised if that wasn't the order and there wasn't like a major injury somewhere. I can't imagine anyone's going to quibble with that. The To me, so I think a brief conversation we could have. To me, the most likely shift, if there is one, would actually be OKC jumping Minnesota. Not that I expect it. I just think that that's, that's the easiest trans, that's the closest transition. Yeah, and I guess that's where my comment maybe that will be misconstrued that I think that Minnesota or that Oklahoma City is still a year away from doing that. If if somehow these rules that you're talking about, David, these rest rules do apply to Damian Lillard and he's not traded and he's forced to play, I guess I could see a world where the Blazers pass the Jazz. But both teams are, are pretty bad. Dame's probably the best player between the two teams, though. So maybe he that's the only scenario. I guess it's a weird one I hadn't even thought about. I feel like there's, I mean, this is a little bit, there's four players in the league who I think have a chance to make a jump. Okay, the jump Shea made a year ago. Anthony Edwards is the most popular choice. LaMelo Ball, Lowry Markkinen, and I don't know if Donovan made it last year. I don't know if Donovan can be better than he was last year. He was sure great. But, you know, in that next year, maybe if he has another, if Donovan has another step to him, it's to be what Shea was last year. So then he's the next one who has that step in him. Uh, if you know, that's the only that's really what we're talking about here is does Ant, do Anthony Edwards and Lowry Markin make some jump that changes this the way this is looked at can I are we, are we at the, the breakout player here is this the segment where I mean we could do it that's fine let's just do it now who cares so I think I first of all you said Lowry Markin didn't he do that last year wasn't his breakout year behind us yeah and the question is whether he's got another step right uh, David, do you think he has the juice with the ball in his hands? I think that's the way that Markkinen could take another step beyond this would be yeah, that he's... I think there's a chance. He just So just from kind of a mentality standpoint, it wasn't until you know, 25 games in the season, Will Hardy in the middle of a press 
in the middle of a film session, kind of looked at the whole team. He was like, you guys all got it. This is our best player, right? Like, everyone's got this. Like, he's our best player. He's our guy. Like, that was 20, I think 20 games into the season. I have to go back and look at my notes. But if if that's the case, then to me, what, like, now Lowry, now he did have the military requirement this offseason, and he played in Europe, but he's, and he played in the World Cup. But he's coming into a season with a different mentality than he's ever had before and a different responsibility. Now, his second half of the year numbers as isolation were really bad, and that's when they were trying to push this stuff. So maybe he's not capable of it. But I do wonder if just coming into the season, knowing like, oh, I'm the man, this is my guy. And it wasn't like, if you go back and look at Lowry's year this year, it wasn't a fluke. Like if you go back and look at his rookie year in Chicago, there's all these bursts, there's all these stretches of his career prior where he'd done this. He also was coached by Jim Boylan and Fred Hoiberg before, like, come on now. Um, So like, I I do think there's a chance that, yeah, I do think there's a real chance Lowry's got a whole nother step in him. I I would bet against it. I I think he's a really good player and i think the leap he already made is very impressive and now he's a an all-star but i don't i would be a little surprised if there was the 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 elevator keeps going up meaningfully from there that he would be the breakout guy um but i'm interested i like him enough that i'd be interested to watch it i the other jazz player for me and this is more narrative than it is performance but walker kessler we mentioned at the top i just he was he's already one of the best defensive most impactful defensive players and i don't think he's talked about or thought about that way and maybe this is a year where it's just like well Utah's not ready yet, but they do have a top 10 defense or top seven defense. And that's, we just pencil that it for the next seven years that they're going to be a top defense because they have that guy. And to me, that's a different conversation than what he's in right now. And I kind of expect him to make it. Does that mean breakout? I don't know. He already did it. He just didn't get recognition for it. But the, the, I, yeah. I, I think that on that front, I mean, think I, I was thinking about Ben Taylor and the idea of, you know, like how you how you build up the resume. And with Kessler, if it, if if you get it, that it's two years in a row that are this rock solid. And especially if he takes a step forward, then part of it is you just you want to see how it see how it develops from there. And if he can be the foundation of the defense and they do what Chris Finch did not do with Rudy Gobert and build build the defense around him, which I fu- fully expect the Jazz to do, at least in some configurations and actually i'll let david reply to that before i had a guy who thematically is similar but i want to hear you on kessler before i get there and i mean i, I think he's great i don't i'm sorry i'm not quite understood i'm following what you're asking well is is like, the idea of a breakout for him is like oh he's the set it and forget it defensive linchpin like that idea that oh i mean that's he's going to be yeah i think he plays what played 21 a night last year he plays 30 this year yeah. um yeah i think he plays 30 minutes a night this year I think he's got a lot more offensive skills than people realize. Um, you know, they weren't as good defense floor. They should have been. They went through a hole early in the year. The Jazz, like, did not allow threes. And then late in the year, they allowed the most threes of any team in the NBA. So I'm curious to see where they are in that regard. Um, but also, if uh, I'd have to pull up some of my notes, which I should have probably had in front of me on Walker. But if you kind of go to rim defense, he was right up there with Draymond and Jay- and Jalen uh, Jaron Jackson last year. No, I think Adams right on him. He, he's already proved what he can do. If he gets better, uh, then then yeah, then he's the breakout. You made a comment in the Matt Moore podcast that I actually have always fundamentally believed the other way, Danny, which is I believe that like guys like Jalen Williams and Walker Kessler are really good. I would have voted them one two in rookie of the year, by the way. Um, rookie years, I actually don't think they usually make a jump in the second year. I think they actually make it in third. I know mm. you, made the, you made the comment with Matt that the year one to year two, those guys really jump in year two. I've always thought the guys that jump in year two were the guys who had brutal rookie years, then make the jump. 
jump, and then the next guys make those other guys make the jump in year three. I could be dead wrong. So on more that. like like I think what you're talking about is what Anthony Edwards did, where he had kind of a rough first year by his standard, and then had a really good second year. Um, yeah, and I feel like those guys that had really good first years, they just kind of they just do it again, and then right. then they then they really figure it out in their third year. So I would expect like Jalen Williams and Walker Kessler. I think they'll get more time, but I think they'll be exactly what they were last year, and then I think they really go a year from now. So the other guy I have, I like that theory. I think it actually probably statistically pans out more than people realize. Um, and I, I would be curious some theories about why that happens. But the, the other guy, I mean, Jaden McDaniels for me is another guy. He had averaged 12 points per game. He shot 40% three last year. He's Defensively, he's already there. To me, he's already a Herb Jones type, like just scary defensive player. It's just what does he do on offense? Is he good enough? And I kind of think he's a good offensive player. Not just like, a, oh, he could stand in the corner and do this. I, I think that there is like a development to him as a guy that can just be one of the offensive guys too. Not a main guy, not a star or anything like that, but very – like Aaron Gordon-esque offensive player who has these things that make mismatches. So to me, he's another breakout candidate. I have one more that I think will surprise you guys. But, mm-hmm. but that well, So is- on the McDaniels front, his usage rate last year was 15.8%. And like the biggest way that he could do it and you could draw, I mean, Siakam had a better on-ball game than than Jaden McDaniels has at any point in his career is that if you can do what Siakam did the year he won most improved, which is you ramp that up, you know, I'm not saying to get to 30, but if he could get to like 22, 23 and maintain his efficiency, it's, it's, a, it's a different thing. I don't see that kind of on-ball stuff with McDaniels, but you brought up Aaron Gordon. Maybe he can go a little bit more in that direction, get opportunistic, create more opportunities for himself off ball than he has right. so far. And Chris Finch, I, I believe is a coach that can do that. Maybe they figured out their figured out things more. I, I will mention still, um, Jalen Williams, I'm a believer in him. I think that he is going to establish himself as a clear-cut starter, if not be like, not superstar apparent, but like high-level starter, potentially star, like that kind of level this year. I love his game, and I think as a complimentary player, he does a lot well and doesn't take a lot. And briefly, because my threshold for this is it's players that we're talking about differently a year from now than we are right now, is a different member of the Thunder, and that's Usman Jang. I think Usman Jang could end up being a nasty, nasty player for the Thunder because he has positional length. I think that his shot mechanics are pretty good. And if he can be somebody who they can kind of plug and play in different lineups and that he can defend different positions, if he's a starting caliber player for the Thunder, then not we're not necessarily even talking about the 240 minutes. We're talking about that they might have five starters that can really play. That's a big. That's a big call on your part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I. I mean, I, I'm just gonna. I mean, early. Hey, eleventh pick of a draft. Like, sure. Like, uh, I watched. He played against us a bunch last year. I just didn't see it. I think his like his shooting was not good last year. So, um, yeah. I mean, hey, he shot 27 percent from threes. So if he can do better than that, then that's gonna help. He's just super young. I mean, that, totally legit call. I just don't see it. Yeah, same. Mr. Modest, you had one more? By the way, on the Jaden McDaniels one, um, I would – the only thing is he shot 39% from three last year. I'll buy the nylon calculus that he's a 36% three-point shooter, not a 39% three-point shooter. Right. Oh, but who would trust nylon calculus? But I did, I just he's he's long he's athletic I, I I don't know I just feel a little bit more confidence in him than your typical can he do one thing on offense stick him here I I, I think he might be a little more versatile all right but my my guy that I am so curious that I think might be the most interesting part of the podcast 
I think Jamal Murray has a breakout year this year. Ooh. Weird candidate for this because, well, first of all, he's only averaged 21 points per game once. That was before the injury for 48 games. He averaged 21 points, which is 21 is nothing. Um, he shot 40% that year. He averaged 20 last year. And then we all know, like, the reason it's weird to say breakout is he's broken out in the playoffs now twice. Twice he's been just a, a like a transcendent player. His career is so unique in that I think it disguises a little bit of what his upside is as a player. And I think that he might be a player that this year averages 24, 25, 26 points per game. And I've already seen the, the reason I don't know if it can be a breakout is because I've already seen him in a lot of these player rankings that come out in the summer ahead of some of the big names like a Donovan Mitchell um, and and some of these guys that maybe have a little bit more of a track record in the regular season. I just think Jamal Murray might be a top 18 player in the NBA, sneaky, great, versatile, high IQ, and his best games have all come in the playoffs. And a lot of that has to do with the injury. I just wouldn't be surprised if he was talked about as in a much higher category, maybe not as high as a Shea Gilgis-Alexander, but but right there in the conversation with when you're starting to talk about guards and there's a lot of multi-time all-star guards that people look at Jamal Murray as being meaningfully better than. I'm with you. I'm with you. This is part of my opening comment of the whole podcast when I said, you know, I think Denver's much better than they were because they have the moxie and Jamal Murray's much better. And the beautiful thing about the best player in the world is he'll let him have it. He'll let him have it. Yeah. I can for Jamal Murray. My comparison for him is Kobe Bryant. Mm. And I know people find that really wild. It's a stylistic comp more than an impact comp. I think because his name is Murray and because this is, you know, in the in the the era of Steph Curry, everybody's compared to Steph Curry. He just has an incredible post game, incredible footwork, super competitor, um, great jumper, loves to get to his jumper and fall away. I just think his game is more like the guard version or the point guard version of Kobe Bryant than it is a sort of like bigger Steph Curry. That's fascinating. Uh, Adam, do you think that there's, you know, we talked about discussing players differently than before. Is there a Michael Porter Jr. potential there? Or is it, I mean, with the structure, I mean, you can't kind of have a Jamal Murray breakout and an MPJ breakout if Jokic is what we think he's going to be. But like, I mean, if he puts it together, he's another unbelievable player. The thing about Michael Porter, his health, I think, is the thing that uh, both Jamal and Michael Porter, you cut out the first 20 games. They actually were awesome last year, but they were coming back from injury. Michael Porter, his athleticism alone, I think, elevates him to a, a, a better player. But Jamal Murray already has all of the skill. He already has all of the fill for the game. So for me, it's like it's a shorter leap. With Michael Porter, it's not just, okay, is he going to have his healthiest year ever? Is he going to be more athletic? He hasn't really demonstrated a great handle. He's never ran pick and roll. Um, there's just too many things that to go from what he is now to all of a sudden having a breakout year. There's too many skill sets that would have to take a meaningful leap and health. So I think he'll be better than ever next year. Um, knock on wood, he stays healthy again all season. I think he'll be better, but I don't think it'll be breakout. I just think he'll be better at what he already does. David, how many teams from the Northwest make the playoffs this year? Final eight. Two, Denver and Minnesota. I, I think I agree. I think and both host a pl- and both host a first game one playoff game. Ooh. <laughs> I agree with that one. I don't think Minnesota's going to host. I mean, they could, but that would be that would be impressive for me. I mean, th- th- they need a lot to go right, but they can. I mean, I I was one of the bigger supporters of Minnesota's over last year and nothing you know, the only thing that changed was the fit was worse and they had a season from hell, but that happens. 
I okay. Here, so then I think you guys would both say that. Would you say? Well, would you say that three is more likely than one? Because if you if if you think Minnesota is that set in stone, then OKC is OKC getting in more likely than Minnesota not making it. No, Minnesota more likely to collapse than OKC to make it. Interesting. I think this question has less to do with either Minnesota or Oklahoma City and has more to do with Dallas and New Orleans. Just because I, I, I think you look at all those other teams, Sacramento, Phoenix, I don't think they're going to collapse. Warriors, Lakers, Clippers, I mean, injuries are so possible with those teams that you don't want to just write off that they're you know going to avoid injury or whatever. But I think they make it. It's I don't think Dallas is that bad. I think everything went wrong for them last year, and I think they're more likely to be a t- top four seed than out of the playoffs like they were last year. And so you just start doing the math and you look at it and go, okay, now you're talking about the last spot in the play-in, you know, them in New Orleans. And, you know, that's that's just tough. Dallas's offense with Luka and Kyrie on the floor is like a 124 or something crazy. Yeah. Well, and like another they're way... Of, one, they're going to be the number one offense in the NBA this year. Another way of putting it, Last year, the sixth best net rating in the West was Phoenix at plus 1.3. I have an instinct that the sixth best net rating in the West this year is going to be a whole hell of a lot higher than plus 1.3. I don't think so. Really? I think it's a new world of the NBA. I think the bottom teams are just so much better that you're not building up your net rating. I, I, I'm no, I think this is the whole story of the league now. Yep. Interesting. There's, I don't think you can create parity the way people think about it, where any given year, any team could be the one seed and the two seed and any of this or that. I don't think it's like that. But I do think there's parity in that the 12th best team in the NBA is a lot closer to the third best team than ever before. There's just a lot of talent and it's hard to have a terrible roster. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. Um, unless somebody has something pressing, I will thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Love it, you guys. Your knowledge is unbelievable. My only problem with doing this show is I can't listen to it to hear what you taught me. (laughs) Otherwise, I will be listening to every other division preview that you do on Real GM, and I'll be catching all all the previews. And I appreciate all your work on this, Danny, because it's a great prep thing for me as a play-by-play announcer. And I every year get into it, and then I'm like, wait a sec, where's the Midwest Division preview? Oh, crap, I did it. Or Northwest Division preview, and I ruined it. So I I appreciate having you on, having me on. Yeah, and for me, it's uh, nice that I we do this early enough in the summer every year that I just steal your guys' takes and pass them off as my own. So this is uh, this was great for me. It is mutually beneficial. I appreciate you guys so much. Thanks again to Adam and David for coming on. You can read Adam's excellent work and, and view some of it. They do some great video stuff, too, at DNVR. And you can also... Check out David Locke. He's the radio voice of the Utah Jazz. I listen to radio feeds fairly frequently. I appreciate the excellent work that he does. And listen to the whole Locked On Podcast Network, but especially if you're a jazz partisan, Locked On Jazz, where he does excellent work there, too. Love having them on. I believe maybe some intrepid listener will remember this or knows that I believe they're the longest running pairing for the Division Capsule podcast. I've changed some of them out for various reasons. Um, mostly availability and everything else, but I believe I've had Locke and Modis for every single one, which is pretty awesome, and I appreciate both of them so much for doing it. I truly love those conversations. Hopefully you love the conversation too. If you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. Real GM Radio is never going to come out on a specific day of the week. It's my availability, guest availability. So subscribing is the way to do that, whatever podcast player you choose. And in that same podcast player, you can leave a rating and review to help other people find the show. You can also do that through social media, word of mouth, whatever. We appreciate it. The single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For us, that is FanDuel, fanduel.com slash Boston. New customers can get that $5 and you get 200 in bonus bets. And then the $5 for $100 off Sunday ticket uh, on YouTube and YouTube TV, that is short-lived. So if you want to do that, move on it quickly. Again, fanduel.com slash Boston. 
You can also check out my other work, Pieces at The Athletic. Nate, Dan Feldman, and I did the mock rookie scale extensions. We recorded it earlier today. I don't know the release schedule, um, but was a lot of fun to do. And so you can check that out on Dunked on Prime. Probably some of it will be a free episode, but I can't guarantee that because I'm not in charge of that. And you can follow us on there. We're going to be going more frequently starting pretty soon. You know, we're not that, that far from the beginning of the season. And if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gml.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I will try to reply, but I acknowledge that I am not the greatest that, and I tell you that at the outset so you know exactly where things are going. I will let you know that it's probably not going to be this week, but because of the little hiatus that that ended up happening earlier in the offseason, there probably will be a couple multi-episode weeks of Real Jam Radio. I actually have another one recorded, but not yet prepared, but I'm probably going to hold that one for a reason that will make sense in a few days, and then that will be ready. And so at some point, there will be a doubling up to consider that a makeup for some of the time that... I missed, and I'm really excited to have all these wonderful conversations and, of course, to share them all with you, the wonderful listeners. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.